There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the, the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. The relationship between mother and son can be a special one. But today's story takes that mother-son bond and turns it completely on its head. On July 21st, 1980, a young man was released from a hospital after he tried to end his relationship with his mother by stabbing her to death. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Barbara Daly Bakeland had a good life. Born September 28, 1921, she was born and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And after a brief brush with tragedy at the age of 11, her father took his own life by locking himself inside of his running car. The life insurance payout put her and her mother on the course of success. The pair moved to New York City, living lavishly in the Del Monaco Hotel, and pretty soon, Barbara became a prominent socialite, gracing the list of one of New York's 10 most beautiful women and becoming a regular model with magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. She was on the guest list of every important party, dated a number of wealthy admirers, and at some point, tried to make her way on the silver screen after being invited to Hollywood to screen test with actor Dana Andrews. While this move didn't make her a movie star, it did introduce her to fellow aspiring actress, Cornelia Dickey Bakeland, who then introduced Barbara to her younger brother, Brooks Bakeland, heir to the Bakelite Plastics inventor. Now, Barbara may have been living the life that most little girls dream of, but it was not without its issues. Barbara, like her mother, suffered from some serious mental health issues and had been a private patient with psychiatrist Foster Kennedy for a number of years. A man who, many years later, told someone upon hearing of Barbara and Brooks' relationship, God forfend that they have a child. At some point, Barbara lied to Brooks about a pregnancy in order to secure an engagement, and soon the pair were wed in California, where she listed herself as a professional painter, while Brooks listed himself as a writer. From the beginning, Brooks knew his new wife had her eccentricities. A friend would later recall an evening out where Brooks jokingly said he would sleep with the next woman who walked through the restaurant's doors for a million dollars. Barbara countered that she would go off with the first man who came along in a car and proceeded to rush out into the middle of the street, flag down a car with four young men in it, and take off, leaving her husband and their friends shocked. But it seemed like the more wild her actions were, the more society wanted to be in her presence. The Bakelands started throwing elaborate Parisian-style salons in their home on the Upper East Side that attracted the likes of Salvador Dali, Tennessee Williams, Greta Garbo, and Dylan Thomas. At one of these gatherings, the men hid behind screens and were told to remove their pants and undergarments, so the women in the room could try and guess which bottom half belonged to their husband. These parties were extravagant, filled with alcohol, and often became quite volatile when the Bakelins' marital disputes made themselves known. 
Both she and Brooks engaged in extramarital affairs, and everyone knew it. And between their relationship and Barbara's mood swings, she became the stuff of legends amongst the upper echelon. In August of 1946, Barbara gave birth to their son, Anthony Bakeland. And from the time he was eight years old, the small family began living a nomadic life, traveling from New York to Europe with the changing seasons. They rented villas and houses in London, Paris, Zermatt, Cap Team, and all over Italy, where Barbara and Brooks maintained their extravagant social life of entertainment and love affairs, not letting the existence of a child slow them down in any way. It was at one of these parties that Brooks met an English diplomat's daughter and a girl 15 years younger than him, and started a long-term affair with the young lady an affair that ended when Brooks asked Barbara for a divorce and she attempted to take her own life. Their relationship wasn't the stuff of dreams and it seemed that the only thing that they could agree upon was their deep want to make Tony some sort of child prodigy. They were known for showing off his talents to their friends, having him read passages in the middle of crowded parties from erotic writings like the Marquis de Sade and gushing about his genius to all that would listen. They weren't content with him being a normal child. They wanted more from him. They wanted someone extraordinary. Barbara was described as both an intense, possessive, emotionally needy mother and a neglectful one all at the same time, doting on him one second and shipping him off to a boarding school the next. It was at this school that Tony had his first sexual encounter with a boy at the age of eight, and by 14, was actively seeking male sexual partners. While Brooks always suspected his son was gay, the revelation was apparently very shocking for Barbara. She fought against her son's, quote, lifestyle, and refused to accept that both of the men in her life were falling short. Brooks with his more frequent affairs, and Tony with his homosexuality. In 1967, while the family was hopping back and forth between Switzerland and Spain, 20-year-old Tony met a man named Jake Cooper, who introduced his new lover to the world of hallucinogenic drugs. When Barbara found out about her son's new boyfriend, she traveled by car to Spain to drag Antony back to Switzerland and away from Jake. When they reached the French border, Tony informed them that he didn't have his passport. And after some heated exchanges, both Tony and Barbara were arrested and placed in jail. According to the stories, when they were led away in handcuffs, Barbara shouted out, Here you are, darling, at last, manacled to mummy. Back in Spain, the overbearing mother began to warm to her son's relationship with Jake, but made it very clear that she preferred his developing relationship with a girl named Sylvie. However, Sylvie was actually having an affair with Brooks, and after finding out about it in 1968, Barbara attempted to take her life once again to ensure her husband's loyalty. It didn't work this time. Brooks pursued the divorce, and Barbara spiraled into an extreme state of depression, trying again to take her life. Brooks married Sylvie anyway. The pair had one child, later divorced, and Brooks remarried a woman named Susan. Just before he and Barbara officially separated, she confided in Brooks that she had a plan to, quote, get Tony over his homosexuality. According to Barbara, it was as simple as taking her son to bed, believing that her sexual abilities would completely change the course of her son's life. Uh, Brooks protested, 
I'm sure doubting her threat was serious. But soon the phrase motherly love was taken much too far and the damage to Tony's psyche was catastrophic. Proud of her parenting decision, Barbara bragged and told anyone who would listen about her sexual relationship with her son, viewing it as therapeutic for the young adult. When Brooks and Sylvie came to Majorca to vacation, unaware that Barbara and Tony had been living there for the summer, they saw firsthand the mental toll Barbara's actions had taken on her son. In a voice that sounded like that of a child, Tony begged, Daddy, please, Daddy, come back to Mommy. She's so unhappy. The same year that 47-year-old Barbara began her therapy with Tony, she met and began dating 29-year-old Samuel Adam Green, A noted pop art curator who launched Andy Warhol's career, was a close friend with Greta Garbo, and later in life became the legal guardian of John Lennon's son. Shortly after meeting, Barbara brought Samuel back to her castle in Majorca and presented him Tony in what he described as a sort of messiah with extraordinary talent in the arts. Samuel, who would later refer to Tony as Barbara's schizophrenic son, claimed the boy had very little talent and said he was simply a poor little rich kid who could not decide on what he wanted to do with his life. He would also describe the bizarre relationship the pair had, saying Tony would insult his mother to try and get a reaction. On one occasion, the trio were eating dinner together when Tony jumped up, walked over to his mother, grabbed her by the hair and yanked her backwards off her chair, dragging her to the door. The entire time, Barbara remained passive, and when Samuel got up to help, she waved him off, telling him not to intervene. Later that evening, the pair acted as if nothing had happened. This was all too much for a holiday romance, and after six weeks of knowing each other and four weeks of an affair, Samuel made his escape and went back to the United States. Barbara, furious, was having none of it and began obsessively pursuing him, at one point walking barefoot across Central Park in the snow wearing nothing but a lynx fur coat and demanding entry into his apartment, claiming she was pregnant with his child. Now, while Samuel's experiences with the mother-son duo was unnerving, it was nothing compared to how they acted when they were alone. After years of experiencing increasingly regular signs of schizophrenia, Tony was officially diagnosed when he was in his 20s, but Brooks refused to allow him to be treated by psychiatrists, viewing the profession as amoral. So Tony got worse, and in late July of 1972, he tried to throw Barbara into the traffic outside of her penthouse in Chelsea, London. The only reason she survived was because he was too weak to push her all the way down, and a friend intervened. The police were called, Tony was arrested, but Barbara refused to press charges, and he was momentarily admitted into a private psychiatric hospital before being released shortly thereafter. Psychiatrists who treated Tony warned the Bigelins that Tony's condition made him capable of murder. But Barbara, always unwilling to see her son's faults, ignored the professionals until it was much too late. Two weeks later, on November 17, 1972, 51-year-old Barbara Bakeland, after a day spent with a friend excitedly talking about yet another one of her parties, came home to eat dinner with her son. It was at this dinner that 25-year-old Anthony Bakeland, after getting into yet another fight with his mother, grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed Barbara just one time, hitting a major artery and killing her almost instantly. 
When police arrived, Tony was still at the scene, and after initially blaming the, the crime on Barbara's elderly mother, who lived thousands of miles away in New York, confessed to everything. Telling police, I think my mind was slightly wacky, and I was very much under my mother's powerful influence. And I felt as though she was controlling my mind. The media went berserk after hearing the news that a member of one of the United States' richest, most powerful dynasties had been murdered in the middle of London's most expensive neighborhood by her own son, the heir of a thriving business and fortune. In June of 1973, Tony appeared at Old Bailey Court, defended by well-known attorney John Mortimer, who described Tony as a gentle, calm, and nice boy trying to get him sent back to the United States for psychiatric care instead of off to an English prison. Instead, he was found guilty of manslaughter with diminished responsibility and sent to Broadmoor Hospital for an indefinite period of time, where, according to those who worked there, he seemed to thrive. But many felt as though Tony, given the life his mother dealt to him, was unjustly detained, and a group of well-meaning supporters worked to try and gain him his freedom, believing that his violence was only towards his mother. Leading the charge was Hugo Money Coots of Coots Bank, who used his major influence to ensure the right people saw their appeals for Tony's case. And on July 21st, 1980, Tony Bakelin was discharged on the condition that he returned to the United States and go to a halfway facility. While many celebrated their victory and Tony's freedom, Brooks Bakeland wasn't so sure his son was better off free. While Tony was in the hospital, he started crafting a number of toys for his new half-brother. And when they arrived, Brooks found them so grotesque and macabre that he had to throw them out immediately. There were also a number of threatening letters sent in which Tony threatened to kill Sylvie for taking his father away. Brooks was, understandably, worried for his new family and worried that his son who he thought was pure evil, was now a free man capable of murder. Back in the U.S. and with Brooks refusing to be part of Tony's life, the now 33-year-old man went to live in a tiny New York apartment of his loving grandmother, Barbara's mother, Nene Daly. Nene, like Barbara, refused to see the flaws in her grandson and forgave him for taking her own daughter's life. But after just six days of freedom, Tony Bakelin grabbed a kitchen knife and attacked his 87-year-old grandmother, stabbing her eight times and breaking several bones. When Nini's nurse arrived at the apartment to begin her shift, Tony answered the door wearing only a pair of shorts and saying, Lena, quick, get the ambulance, he shouted. I have just stabbed my grandmother. When the NYPD entered the apartment, they heard Nini shrieking and Tony came rushing out, saying she won't die, the knife won't go in, and she keeps screaming, I can't understand it. He was arrested and told police that he tried to have sex with his grandmother, just like he did with his mother, and that the frustration came to a head when she tried to stop him from making a phone call to England. He threw the phone at her, hit her in the head, and realizing he had injured her, try to put her out of her misery. He said she was angry she wouldn't just die as quickly as his mother did and told police, I hate it when this happens. Anthony Bakeland was charged with attempted murder and sent off to Rikers Island where, after word of his trust fund got out, he became prey to his fellow inmates. Within months, he had given away tens of thousands of dollars as protection and gifts 
and began relationships with some of the inmates and, according to some accounts, a male corrections officer. On March 20th, 1981, Tony was taken to court for a preliminary hearing where he was expected to be released on bail while awaiting his trial, but instead learned that his trial was further delayed due to his medical records not arriving from England. He returned to his cell where, a little over a half an hour later, he was found dead with a carrier bag over his head. Brooks Bakelin believes his son was murdered, possibly because he threatened to reveal his relationship with the guard or because he refused to hand off more money to his fellow inmates. Others believe it was suicide, completed by a man who never really had a chance at a normal life, a man who still acted as a boy, and a man who, in the end, could not overcome the life his mother forced upon him. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 22nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.